genealogy. Has anybody really researched their genealogy a lot? Anybody? A few people have. Um, it's not something my family has done much of, you know, researching our genealogy, partially because we just already know it's not that interesting. Um, there, you, you could be like um, one guy who, you know, hired this company and paid him $1,000 to find out all about his family history, and then he ended up paying $10,000 to keep it quiet. And so it, it could be a, a dangerous thing if you, if you start to research your genealogy. And why do people do that? Well, a lot of times people research their family history in hopes that they can find out, obviously, who they were, re, re, were related to and hoping that maybe that person is, you know, like famous or, you know, has a lot of prestige or maybe you're going to find out you can come into a lot of money or something, you know. But, but no one really researches their family history in hopes that they find out that, that they're, you know, distant relatives were someone, you know, notorious or infamous, right? That's not what we want to find whenever we do that. And yet, when we look at Matthew, and we look at the account that he gives of the life of Jesus, instead of beginning the story like Luke does, with the angels coming, and, uh, you know, the shepherds, and, and Bethlehem, and baby Jesus, instead of doing that, he, he gets to that, but instead of starting there, Matthew starts with the genealogy of Jesus. And he does this for a couple of different reasons. First of all, he, he wants to prove that Jesus is a Jew. And to do that, you have to be related to Abraham. And so he connects Jesus with Abraham. He also wants to prove that Jesus is related to King David. Because for Jesus to be the Messiah, he has to be related to King David. and Because everybody knew that, that the Messiah was going to come through the lineage of King David. And so that's what Matthew was going to do. So he goes back to Abraham, and he goes back to David, and he traces them all the way to Jesus to make his point and that, that Jesus is the Messiah, that he's the king, that he's the one. He's related to all the right people. And as we've discovered, Matthew also says in there, not only is he related to the right people, to David and to Jacob and to Abraham and to Isaac, but he's also related to some of these people that that we wouldn't exactly expect him to put in there. Some of those R-rated characters of the Bible that Jesus has in his family history. He, he mentions people that, that we'd probably rather he just skip over or even pay to keep quiet. And yet Matthew brings them up and he talks about them. He, in this list that should be about all men, it should just have the names of men, he lists four women. And three of those four women, they're not even Jewish, which proves to us and shows, Matthew's telling us, that Jesus didn't even have a pure Jewish bloodline. And yet he's trying to make the case that Jesus is the king, that he's the Messiah, and he's really not helping his case much. As we saw last week, whenever we talked about, uh, about Tamar and, and that whole story, that Matthew puts in people that had some pretty crazy backgrounds, that did some really weird things that are really hard for us to, to comprehend and, and really wrap our brains around. And he says, I want you to pay attention to these people. So the question becomes, why did he do that? Why did Matthew go out of his way to include these people? And the answer, I think, is that, as we've been proposing, that not only are they part of the story of Jesus, but they're the point of the story. Not only are they part of the history, but they're the point of the history. Uh, Matthew, you have to remember, he's writing to these very religious people. He's writing to uh, a group of people that, that believe that their right standing or their platform before God is based on what they have done or what they promised not to do or the things that they haven't done or the things they promised to do. It's, it's this platform of, of a self-righteousness that they uh, came to God upon, and, and that's how they approached God. And in a way, I think if we're honest, we approach God in the same way, don't we? A lot of times we approach God and we say, God, 
you should listen to my prayers because I'm not that bad, right? I'm not as bad, well, not as bad as my neighbor, right? I know I'm maybe not as good as that neighbor, but, I, you know, I'm good. So, God, you should listen to me. And we approach God a lot of times based on our platform. And, and the problem with that is if we try to approach God based on our self and our self-righteousness, then, then we're really never going to be good enough. We're never going to feel good enough about ourselves to truly have peace with God. And that's, that's the, what we're looking for is that peace with God. And, and we will never attain that on our own. There's always going to be conflict. And I think Matthew knew this. And as Matthew is about to launch into this greatest story that could ever be told, he wants to remind us of something that's been true all along. That humanity has been invited to approach God, not based on ourself and not based on what we have done, but based on what has been done for us. Based on the love and the mercy and the grace and the forgiveness of God, because that's what God has done for us. And so Matthew traces the lineage of Jesus. He underscores all the people that God has been distributing grace to all along, and maybe people that we really haven't thought about. And the reason he does that is because not only are they part of the story, but they're the point of the story. And can I tell you that I believe that the reason you and I are part of the story is in spite of ourselves, we're the point of the story. That's the point of the story of Christmas, that that God came and, and that God sent his son Jesus to us. And so Matthew begins to his Jewish audience by saying, I want you to know the God that sent his son. I want you to understand. I want you to see where he came from. Because all along, God has chosen sinners not only to be a part of the story, but to be the point of the story. And so he begins. If you have your Bibles and want to turn to Matthew chapter 1, we're going to read one of the most exciting chapters you could ever read in the Bible. It's the genealogy, and I I know that several of you just read this, you know, nightly because it's so exciting, and so I want to read it to you. It begins this way. It says, this is the genealogy of Jesus, the Messiah, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Abraham was the father of Isaac, Isaac the father of Jacob, Jacob the father of Judah and his brothers, Judah the father of Perez and Zerah, whose mother was Tamar. Remember Tamar from last week? Interesting story. Look her up. Perez the father of Hezron, Hezron the father of Ram. Ram the father of Amminadab, Amminadab the father of Nashon, Nashon the father of Salmon, Salmon was the father of Boaz, whose mother was Rahab. Now, we're going to take a time out right there. If you're Jewish and you're reading through this, that's who Matthew was writing to, and you get to the name Rahab, you go, ah, because there's a story behind Rahab. There's a nickname, there's a label for Rahab. Um, There are several people in the Bible that have labels or nicknames, uh, several people throughout history. We're going to have a little audience participation here. You probably know several of these labels that people have. For instance, in the Bible, we know of John the Baptist. That's right. Next week, we're going to talk about, this may be a little more difficult, Uriah the Hittite. Okay, a few of you, very good. Um, Alexander the Attila the... You guys are getting better at this, see? Conan the... Governor. Buffy the Vampire Slayer. That's right. Jack the Ripper. Jabba the... Okay, very good. You guys are good at this. So, throughout history, it's not uncommon for us to find you know, real people and fictional people that have a nickname or something that's associated to them. For Rahab, her nickname was Rahab the 
prostitute. Now, some of you are going, say that in church? Okay, say harlot, if that makes you feel better. That's what the King James Version says, is harlot, prostitute. Um, this creates some tension in the genealogy of Jesus. It just really does. Rahab, as we will discover, she's not even Jewish. She's a Canaanite. And the Canaanites were kind of the enemy of you know, the chosen people. They were the people that, that God told them to drive them out and, and to destroy them and, and eliminate them in order to enter the promised land. And here, right here in the genealogy of Jesus, we find, as we're getting ready to launch into the Christmas story, we have Rahab the prostitute, Rahab the harlot. You see, what's really interesting about this is that God's law was very clear on how you handle and what you do with prostitutes. It was not very good. There were harsh punishments for anyone who played the harlot. And Matthew, he could have skipped over her. In fact, he should have skipped over her. He should have, you know, just kept that quiet and not included it, but he didn't. He, he put it in there. He should have stuck with just the guy's names, but instead he included the names of women as well. And, and I think it was to remind his audience from the very outset of what he was writing that God's grace and God's love and God's mercy and God's forgiveness has been available all along. And not only is Rahab part of the story, she's the point of the story. And as we'll discover, it's, it's a very interesting story that Matthew is about to tell us. Let me read to you part of Rahab's story. If you want to find it for yourself, it's in Joshua chapter 2. So there's Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, Joshua, the sixth book in if you want to find it. And uh, we're going to look at, be looking at chapters 2 and chapter 6. Here's a little bit of background uh, as you turn there. Um, Israel is a new nation. They've less, left Egypt. They've been wandering around the wilderness for 40 years, uh, and now they're coming into this land that God has promised them, the land that Abraham and Isaac and Jacob used to live in before they ended up as slaves in Egypt, and they went there because of the famine. And according to some estimates, at this time in the life of the nation of Israel, there's between 2 and 3 million people that are coming into the promised land. So not just a handful of people, a lot of people. And they're preparing to cross the Jordan River and move into this area where the, the dominant city is Jericho. The area is, is controlled by the city of Jericho. And Joshua, who's the leader of Israel, now that Moses has died, he sent a couple of guys, a couple of spies, into Jericho just to see if he could figure out and find out what they were up against. Because the plan was to conquer city after city after city after city in order to take back the promised land that, that God had promised to them. And so these two guys... They arrive in Jericho, and they're trying to slip in, but they're not very good at it, I guess, because they're, kind of, they're spotted. Uh, they find out that they're there, and so these, the, the people that spotted them go to the king and say, hey, there's these two Hebrew guys we saw sneaking into the city. We need to do something about it. And so the king says, I want you to go find them. And so they begin their investigation, and they search for these men, and they get the tip that these men have been seen going into the house of Rahab, the prostitute. And so... They go to Rahab's house and knock on the door and say, hey, have you seen these guys? She goes, yeah, they were here, but they took off. They decided that they wanted to get out of the city, so they left right before they were closing the gates. But if you hurry, you might be able to catch them. And so um, they, that's what they decided to do. You see, in that culture, if you were outside the city walls when the gates were closed and you came, tough. You had to stay outside the city walls. Once the gates were closed, you were stuck, and they didn't want to get stuck. And so... They go after them. They're pursuing them. And, and, and uh, she, meanwhile, as she sends the people out to go look for them, she goes upstairs and has this conversation with the spies that she has hidden. And this is where we pick up the story in Joshua chapter 2, beginning in verse 8. It says this, Before the spies lay down for the night, 
she, being Rahab, went up on the roof and said to them, I know that the Lord has given this land to you. And it's very interesting what she says there. The Hebrew translation for God here, the Lord, the phrase that she uses, is is a phrase that was so uncommonly used that most Jewish people and Jewish scholars, they wouldn't even dare to speak this name. It was a name that was only written. And we don't know what language exactly Rahab spoke. But we do know that whenever they were writing this down and writing down this account, they used the word that was the most sacred, the, the most holy, the most the biggest way you could describe God is the word that they used here. And the word literally means the existing one, the name above all names. And that's the word Rahab used to describe this God that she really didn't know about. She says, we believe in that God. As big as you can view God, we believe that He has given you this land. And then she continues. says, and that a great fear of you has fallen on us, so that all who live in this country are melting in fear because of you. We have heard how the Lord dried up the water of the Red Sea for you when you came out of Egypt, and what you did to Sihon and Og, the two kings of the Amorites east of the Jordan, whom you completely destroyed. When we heard of it, our hearts melted, and everyone's courage failed because of you. For the Lord your God, and she uses that again, the Lord your God is God in heaven above and on earth below. Essentially, Rahab is saying, in spite of all I've heard about all these Canaanite gods, and Canaanites had all these different gods. They had a God for every season, a God for everything, and they had their little wooden statues. And she said, in spite of all that I've been taught about all the Canaanite gods, in spite of all that I've ever learned, I believe that your God, whoever he is, your God is the God. He's the God that rules over all these other little gods that that we've put up, the ones that I've heard about in my lifetime. And so there's this amazing sense of faith that Rahab has even though she really doesn't know God. She just knows about God. She's heard about Him. Verse 12, it says, Now then, please swear to me by the Lord that you will show kindness to my family because I've shown kindness to you. Give me a sure sign that you will spare the lives of my father and mother, my brothers and sisters, and all who belong to them, and that you will save us from death. Our lives for your lives, the men assured her. If you don't tell what we're doing, we'll treat you kindly and faithfully when the Lord gives us the land. So she let them down by a rope through the window for her house she lived in was part of the city wall. So essentially, Rahab is saying, I may not know much about your God, but I've heard about him and I believe that he is the God. He's the God above all gods. And so they agreed to spare her life in exchange for her silence and not letting the people know uh, that they were there. And to signify their agreement, she hung a scarlet cord in her window. She put a scarlet cord to say, this is the house, this is the one you need to remember. And so she lets them down out of the city wall and gives them specific instructions on what they are to do so they don't get caught. She knows how they operate. And so look at verse 21, it says this, so she sent them away and they departed and she tied the scarlet cord in the window. So eventually the spies make their way back to Joshua and they, and they give the report and Joshua is convinced that this means that God is truly going to give Jericho into our hands, okay? And so um, Joshua gets his generals together after hearing from God and this is a little bit of a Bible story you've probably heard of, uh, the Battle of Jericho. Anybody know the, the children's song? Joshua fit the Battle of Jericho. I'm not a good singer, so I'm going to stop right there. Anybody know that song? You go, have you seen it on a flannel graph? Or maybe there you got a picture Bible that you brought with you. And you're like, oh, yeah, here's the picture. I see it right here. Um, didn't know that they were colored. But anyway, um, 
you know, we, we've usually heard of this story, and, and what happens is kind of unusual. They're, they all get together with Joshua. Joshua's heard from God, and Joshua says to his generals, okay, here's the plan. You're not going to need your weapons. Instead, what you need are your walking shoes. You need to get comfortable, because here we go. What we're going to do is we're going to get the whole group together, and we're going to walk around the city walls one time on the first day, and that's it. And then on day two, we're going to walk around the city one time, and that's it. And day three, same thing. And day four, and day five, and day six, and day seven. And day seven, we're going to walk around seven times, and then we're all going to shout. Now, I don't know about you, but that sounds more like a parade than it does a battle strategy, right? They're just kind of getting together and going for a walk. And yet, that's what God tells them to do. Why is that? Well, I, I have to think that it's because God wanted them to know that he was the one giving them the victory, that Rahab was right, that he was the God above all gods, and that he was in charge, and he was in control, and he was the one that was going to restore the Israelites to their home in their promised land. And so that's what they do. Day one, walk around one time. Day two, one time. Day three, one time. You've got to be thinking if you're just the average Israelite walking around going, what are we doing, Right? Day seven, they get up early, the text tells us. They get up at dawn and they start walking. And not once, not twice, but seven times they go around. And then they let out a shout after the, the trumpets blow. And, and Joshua gives the command, they let out a shout. And it's really interesting, if you read what believing and non-believing scholars say happen at this point, there's some great theories. I just want to share two of them with you real quick. One is that when they shouted that there were so many people that the sound reverberated off the walls in such a way that caused them to fall down. To me, I think of Mythbusters immediately. Like, we've got to write that in, right? Submit that. See that? Another theory is that because there were so many people and they, and they marched around, that they eroded the, the dirt around the edge. And so whenever they shouted, it just caused it to crumble. It's like, yeah, that's interesting as well. Uh, you know, it's just interesting the different theories. But, but I believe that God caused this to happen. Because at the end of the day, they shouted, the walls collapsed, and chaos ensued. God gave them the victory. The, the people of Jericho, they were scared to death. And the people of Israel, they, they took everything. And in the midst of the chaos and, and the terror and the bloodshed, things that, that really have trouble relating to or, or truly understanding, God reaches in and saves this one family and spares the life of Rahab. Spares all of her family. Spares her because of the faith of this, this one Canaanite prostitute. And here's how the story ends up in Joshua chapter 6, verse 22. Joshua says to the two men, who had spied out the land, go into the prostitute's house and bring her out and all who belong to her in accordance with your oath to her. But Joshua spared Rahab, the prostitute, down in verse 25, with her family and all who belonged to her because she hid the men Joshua had sent as spies. And you remember how they found her? How did they identify her? The scarlet cord. The scarlet cord that she tied in her window. That's how they remembered and that's how they knew where she was and listen to the last part of this verse because this is this is really interesting very cool it says and she lives among the israelites to this day and she lives among the israelites to this day who does rahab and not to this day but when this was written she was living among them she was a part of them she was a picture she was an illustration of someone that was a foreigner someone that was an enemy, someone that was opposite to the Israelites' way of thinking. And yet, I think it illustrates the fact that God is still a God who is full of grace and full of mercy, a God who would, who would spare a foreigner, a God who would spare an outsider, an enemy, someone who, by every law that the Israelites had, she should have been condemned and stoned and, and 
just gotten rid of. And instead, she lived among the Israelites to this day. And I think it's very interesting to, to look at this through a different set of lenses. Because for Jewish people to read this, not only in the first century, but for, for hundreds of years later, they would be reading the genealogy of Jesus, and they would, they would read this as recorded by Matthew, and they would get to this story, and they would have to pause and think through how this whole thing worked out. What the Bible doesn't tell us, and we kind of take some liberties, and I, I'm making this up, so I don't know that this really happened this way, but, but what it doesn't tell us is that one day Rahab, as she's living among them, and she's going out doing her chores or doing whatever she was doing, that a guy by the name of, of Salmon decides, hey, I think I'd like to go have coffee with you. Would you like to go have coffee? And so they go have coffee, and they get to know each other. And then, you know, coffee leads to lunch, and then lunch leads to dinner, and then they decide that they're going to get married, and, and they get married. This Jewish man marries this Canaanite woman. And as a result, they have a child, and they have a son, and they decide to na name him Boaz. I don't know why they would choose to name him Boaz, but they did. And so what we find out later is Boaz grew up, and he married this woman by the name of Ruth. If you know a little bit about your Bible, there's a whole book of the Bible about Ruth. Great story. And what we know from later is that the great-great-grandson of those two people is actually King David. And you make the connection, and you see how it's all put together. Matthew pauses in the middle of this story and mentions Rahab to bring all of this to the forefront, to bring all of it to light. And why does he do that? Well, because it emphasizes the message of Jesus. It emphasizes the point of the story. She's the perfect illustration as to why Jesus came. And the truth of the matter is, I think that, that her story, maybe the details are different, but they're very similar to our story. Our story is very similar. Just as Rahab had a, had a label, Rahab the prostitute, I, I think that, that you and I have labels as well. And we wear those labels, and we carry those labels around. And if, if we were to to pause and take a moment and really really start digging down into you and peel back the layers of your heart and watch your behavior and just see who you truly are, we would find that label. And oftentimes, it's because of that label that, that we usually know that we're carrying, it makes us afraid or makes us hesitate to approach God because we begin to approach God on our own basis. We begin to approach God on the basis of our label. And we see ourselves as, as failing. We see ourselves as not able to stand before God because we're trying to do it on our own. We, we look at our label and we say, because of that, I can't approach God. He doesn't want anything to do with me. And so we make the decision that there's no reason to uh, attend church on a consistent basis. There's no reason to try to engage in community. There's no reason to seek that personal relationship with God because of my label. And even if it's a secret label, it's a label nonetheless. And, and we feel like it keeps us away from God. With that in mind, I ask you this question. What's your label? What is your label? And if you're honest with yourself, what is it that keeps you from approaching God? I wrote down a list of labels, and maybe one of these would help describe you. Carrie the coveter. Grace the greedy. Al the alcoholic. Gary the glutton. Holly the holier than thou. Larry the luster. Cherry the cheater. James the jerk. Nancy, the never-feel-worthy. Sam, the swindler. Alice, the addict. Barry, the abuser. Jeannie, the jealous. Faith, the unfaithful. And the list could go on and on and on of the labels that we put on each other and the labels we put on ourselves. 
And I think when Matthew is writing this genealogy, he gets to Salmon and he gets to Boaz and he thinks, you know what? I have to throw Rahab in there. I have to point this out. And do you know why? It might be because Matthew had a label as well. What was Matthew's label? He was known as Matthew the tax collector. Matthew the tax collector. He was first seen by Jesus doing what? Collecting taxes. He was seen doing the very thing that caused him the most embarrassment in his life. He was collecting taxes. A Jewish man collecting taxes from Jewish people and sending those taxes to Rome and getting rich all at the same time. It was an embarrassment. And and he remembered when Jesus walked up to him and said, Matthew, once you quit being a tax collector, then you can follow me. No, that's not what Jesus said at all. Jesus said, once you clean up your act, then you can follow. No. Jesus said, once you get a better reputation, you do all these good things. No. Jesus looked at him in the midst of what he was doing, label and all, and said, follow me. That was it. He said, follow me. Just as you are, follow me. And Matthew made the decision to follow him. And can I tell you that God says the same thing to you and to me? He looks at us with our label and all, and he simply says, follow me. God is inviting us into this relationship with him based on grace and mercy and forgiveness and and his love for us, not based on our label, not based on the fact that we have to get it all figured out, but based on the fact that our sins are forgiven. They've been forgiven through through the death, the burial, the resurrection of him on the cross. That's the hope we have. That's why we can get through this thing called life. And no matter what our label is, God offers us salvation. For Rahab, she hung a scarlet cord in her window, which gave her a new identity. It identified her as someone that was going to be saved. And it gave her a new life. It gave her a new label. It identified her. And for us, we have the scarlet blood of Jesus Christ that gives us a new identity, that gives us a new label, that allows us to have our sins forgiven because of His sacrifice for us. And here's the question that we all have to wrestle with and we all have to ask ourselves. If you're listening to this and you're really honest with yourself, would you be honest enough to admit that you have a label? And in admitting that you have a label, would you also allow the truth of God's Word to penetrate your label and to penetrate your heart and to penetrate your mind and to understand the fact that He loves you, label and all. He wants you just as you are. His desire for us is to surrender to Him, to give our life to Him, to to turn it over to Him completely. And as a result of that, we can be in a relationship with Him. And as we're in a relationship with Him, we can grow more and more like Him. He doesn't come to us and say, change first. You've got to get it all together. You've got to make sure that you dot all your I's and cross all your T's. He doesn't say that. He doesn't say, whenever you finally feel worthy, come to me. He says, you come just like you are. Because I love you just like you are. And I hope if you hear nothing else this morning, you understand that God loves you just the way you are. And He sent His Son for you just the way you are. And He wants that relationship with you just the way you are. He says, surrender to me. Come to me. Establish that relationship with me. Every week, we have the opportunity to offer His invitation to you. It's not our invitation. It's an invitation for you to accept Him. And if we can help you in that decision, if we can help you take that next step in walking closer to God, we want to do our very best to help you with that. But the decision is for you to make. The decision for you to surrender your life to Him. The decision to say, I don't want to do it on my own anymore. 
I want to get rid of my label and I want to go to God and say, here I am. Take me. And He welcomes you with open arms. This morning, we're prepared. We're ready to receive you. If you need to surrender to Him and accept Him and be obedient through baptism, maybe for the first time, the water is ready. It's warm. We're ready for you. Maybe for you, it's, it's time to, to say, I, I'm carrying this burden, and I just want someone to pray with me. We've got decision counselors that are willing to pray with you and just help you and, and walk through this road of life with you. Maybe today, you just need to, where you are, say, I want to take a step. I want to do it different. I want God to be my God as much as I can understand God. I put my faith, I put my trust, I put my hope in Him. If you want to talk to someone about a decision, if you want to make a decision publicly this morning, we invite you to make your way over to the cross. Would you stand with me? Ian's going to lead us in this invitation song. You go to the cross, and we'll meet you there.